Hi, I'm Dr. Trish Santos-Smith and welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast. Dr. Alicia Kennedy graduated from Murdoch University with a Bachelor of Veterinary Science and has been working as a veterinarian for over 30 years. Following her passion to support pet ownership of vulnerable people, eight years ago, Dr. Alicia Kennedy founded Cherished Pets, a social veterinary enterprise that supports the human-animal bond through all life stages. She established its charitable partner, Cherished Pets Foundation, that provides additional support for eligible elderly and disabled pet owners living alone in our community. Hi, Alicia. Thank you so much for joining us on the Pure Animal podcast today. It's a real pleasure to have you here with us. I know you're very busy, so I'm very grateful um, for your time today. You're welcome. I'm actually really happy to be here. So thank you for the invitation. Oh, no problem at all. Now, this podcast is going to be a little bit different to what we usually do. We usually um, focus on conditions and treatments or uh, modalities and management of conditions. But for this one, we are going to be talking about the human-animal bond and veterinary social work, which I know is a passion of yours and what you do. But before we get into that, I was wondering if you could share with us a little bit about yourself and what made you want to become a vet in the first place? Good question. Um, And I think the reason that I became a vet is actually influenced the direction that I've taken as a vet. So you mentioned that we're exploring the human-animal bond and, you know, that is such a profound um, relationship that we share with our pets that impacts um, human health and well-being. And I was very much influenced in my younger years by spending a lot of time with my nana, um, who after my granddad died, she was quite isolated and lived on her own. And she had this very fat and feisty uh, fox terrier called Jenny, who not many people You had to kind of know her to love her and not many people liked this little dog. But as a little girl spending lots of time with my nana and and Jenny, her dog, um, I I witnessed the power of the human-animal bond to help with loneliness and companionship and, uh, you know, enriching my nana's life. They used to go, both of them waddled. They used to go out walking together. And I always had this draw to helping animals but I also had a very strong pull to uh, people as well. So, you know, in my years as a vet, uh, I often say that um, I've I've approached my veterinary work with that human-animal bond lens. I've never really been a vet that enjoys cutting things. Um, Mm -hmm. I've always allowed other vets to do the, the, the blood and gore stuff, but my favourite space as a vet, and I suppose what we're talking about today is in the companion animal space. I've done a little bit in mixed practice but not a lot. And and I think a lot of what we talk about with the human-animal bond uh, has application particularly with horses. But, you know, for my world is companion animals and uh, I always thrived in the consulting room and getting to know not just my pet but I would be thinking about the human with this pet and that has really 
influenced the style of practice and service that I developed, uh, which was, you know, keeping this pet healthy and well and together with his human and what is the capability of that human. So that kind of leaned me into the supporting pets of vulnerable people. And it's um it's really interesting you say that because I do feel, you know, having worked as a vet and with, with other vets, that you do have some vets that, like, opposite to you, they do like the surgery bit and they just like to be isolated in the back of the clinic and do the surgery bits. And then you have vets that really love the consultation and looking after the pet. Sometimes they just focus mainly on the pet, but then there's other vets like you that also like to focus on the pet and the owner as well, which I think it's extremely important. We just can't forget about the pet owner because the pet can't thrive without the owner. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, we are talking a lot more about this now and it's wonderful to get the, the traction and the recognition of our work in this human-animal bond space because I do find sometimes the, the narrative and the dialogue in the vet industry kind of places the client as the enemy mm-hmm. and I don't like that. That doesn't sit comfortably with me. So uh, I describe myself as a social-hearted vet, so I'm not just about the pet, I'm also about the people and there are a lot of it, there are a lot of us out there. There are a lot of vets and nurses that do have that social heart but that brings with it challenges because the emotional load in the human animal space is mm. higher because we do care about the people as well as the pets and so that brings with it some of the challenges that we're actually facing in our industry. And when we look at, you know, the the uh, mental well-being of vets and vet nurses, it, it is those non-technical skills that are so important mm. to develop and, and thrive as a vet. But I'm also recognising that every human is different. And like you, like you say, there's there's a place in our industry for the vets who who want to not be dealing directly with the people. And what I would like to see in the future is stronger support and development of the social-hearted vets and nurses who actually, with the right support and skills, can really thrive in that uh, consulting room space and not see the client as the enemy because that doesn't serve the pet or the practice or the vet Mm. or the client Um, and I'm very much that we're in this together and I have a real team approach to pet care so I we actually you know the way we think about our service is say the pet's name is George um, we think of Team George and who is in Team George and it might be the vet and the nurse and the groomer and the volunteer that's helping if that we'll talk more about that later I'm sure but there's more than one person in George's life that becomes part of his healthcare team and the client is uh you know absolutely fundamental in there and I think one of the uh it's a little tip I suppose for younger vets and that but I've I've learned to listen to my clients and to acknowledge and recognise their observations and not to dismiss them. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Often nobody knows that pet better than his human. Mm. 
and they do observe closely and pick up things and we need to be factoring that into our history and our, our planning. It also helps us reflect on their capability um, and if we dismiss them and don't listen to them, they don't feel heard and I've inherited too many clients over the years that have not been satisfied with their prior vet because they felt that they'd been dismissed and not listened to. So, you know, I can give you great examples. And we had one recently with, um, I'm trying to remember the specifics, but, you know, it was this elderly, oh, I know what it was, definitely like a cat fight abscess on the side of the face of this cat, an older, older client known her for a while and I feel like there might be a little bit of dementia creeping in Mm. there and come hell or high water she believed that a rat had bitten the side of her cat's face when it was out playing in the plant pots and I'm not even going to try and convince her that that's Mm. not the cause of it because that's what she believes and it doesn't actually affect the treatment plan and um, you know we just I just went forward with that letting her you know believe that that's probably what happened. But, you know, uh, we have to be listening to our clients and validating their thoughts and feelings and observations. Yeah. Absolutely. I almost feel like there should be a module at uni talking about that and pet owners and their capabilities and, you know, how when to... When did you graduate? What, um, did you back in 2002. So it's been a while. <laughs> so yeah, they yeah, didn't yeah, have yeah, anything okay. like that. <laughs> You're mature. No, and I think, look, I've just come from... Uh, an industry forum last week and and I have never felt more optimistic and inspired about the direction our profession is going because so much of the conversation was around uh, acknowledging and supporting the development of the non-technical skills and Mm -hmm. the human-animal bond is such a key driver of animal health and well-being and human health and well-being and, and the more we start to embrace the human-animal bond is our lens of care, the better it's going to be for everyone, including the people working in our industry. And and yeah. as I said earlier, it won't be for every vet, but if we've got social-hearted vets and nurses that receive that extra support and training, the profession will be stronger for it. Absolutely, absolutely. So about seven years ago, into, I think it was 2015, you did establish a unique social enterprise called Cherished Pets. Yeah. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about that? And um, yeah, I mean, you've spoken a little bit about your passion and why you started the business, but if you could tell us a little bit about it, that would be fantastic. Um, my original intention with Cherished Pets was to create a veterinary service that supported pets of the elderly. It was as simple as that. And I knew from the beginning that if we consider older people, 30% of uh, pensioners live below the poverty line. And my uh, purpose, which hasn't changed, is to enable the benefits of healthy companion pets and a thriving human-animal bond to be accessible to all people. So if we're considering people that fall into that demographic of uh, 30%, Mm -hmm. you know, that struggle to pay, I knew from the outset that we would need a volunteer program to support with some of the what's become our home pet care assistance service. So we did things back to front and we actually established our charity, Cherished Pets Foundation, at the beginning. So Cherished Pets is unique in that we're a dual entity organisation. So we are a 
private veterinary practice mm-hmm. and we have our um, Cherish Pets Foundation, which is a you know t- DGR status tax deductible uh, registered charity. Our private practice um, is a certified B corporation, so we're the world's first certified B Corp vet service, and that means that we give priority and pay attention to ethical business practice across all that we do. So B Corporation, not everyone's heard of it, but no. it's a global global certification program for ethical business practice and it's a growing business community. So I wanted to do it a little bit differently and put purpose and profit at the heart of everything that we do. And so establishing the charity meant that we could develop a volunteer program. So we match volunteers with elderly members of the community and people living with a disability to assist them with primarily dog walking, um, but also transporting pets to and from the vet um, to the groomers. We, through our uh, home care assistance program, we have community vet nurse who, if you think about community nurses in the human health world, you can extrapolate that. It's a beautiful role. Um, our first community vet nurse is almost transitioning to retirement and it's the perfect role for her because she floats around the community and visits our elderly clients and just does a monthly check-in. She can help with medication and clipping faces and bottoms and just keeping keeping an eye on the well-being of the pet. Yeah, okay. um, and then through the charity, we can also generate some subsidy funding support for vet bills and um, all of our pets on that program have emergency care plans. So if the human for some reason becomes uh, unwell and needs to go to hospital or into rehab, uh, we have a plan in place for their pet. And in the ideal scenario, they're matched with their volunteer and the the relationship between our volunteers and our uh, program participants is very special. There's a lot of companionship in there for both parties and it's become, you know, a very special element of our community focus is connecting isolated elderly people and people with disabilities in, in our community with our volunteers who then you know, engage and carry it forward. So community is really important to us and it's kind of the fabric and connection of everything that we do. Um, Yeah, so that was a long answer because I give long (laughs) answers. But, but yeah, Terrace Pets is a dual entity organisation. We've got our charity. And then as we've progressed, our service has expanded in response to demand. So we now, as a social veterinary enterprise, we run our private practice, Mm -hmm. which we have a little clinic. So 2018, we opened up our little clinic in um, the heart of the neighbourhood of Old Ocean Grove. So literally some of our older clients can walk up to us. We're not on a busy highway or anything like that. We're nestled in a little uh, neighbourhood strip of shops and it's just beautiful. So just more accessible? More accessible and, you know, we offer a regular private GP veterinary service through that. We're not a full hospital and we've developed beautiful relationships with a couple of local vet hospitals who support us and our clients. Um, And we have a signature end-of-life service. So if we think about the human-animal bond and vulnerability, there's no more vulnerable time than when we're facing the uh, 
death of our pet. Uh, so that's a huge part of what we do. And then our third service stream is our vet social work service. And through that, we're supporting five vulnerable groups in the community. So the elderly people and people with disabilities that I mentioned earlier, but also uh, mental health, uh, people fleeing domestic violence and people experiencing homelessness. Right. Okay. So when you do have a pet owner that requires assistance, um, is the first step to like send one of the volunteers over, have a home consult and work out all the needs? Uh, Yes and no to that answer. So not a volunteer. So this is a great question because it leads us into talking about our vet social work service. Mm -hmm. So we recognised very early that um, when you're working with vulnerable people and people that are facing challenge, whether that's financial, physical or emotional, psychological, you actually need to have skilled people in there managing those. We refer to them as complex human elements and it could be any of us tomorrow. Like Mm -hmm. life, I think we've all learned over the last few years, is not guaranteed tomorrow and circumstances can change and, you know, people assume that we're just a... uh, supporting people that have financial barriers, but we actually support people who can afford to pay but have physical or psychological barriers to um, barriers to keeping their pet healthy and well and together with them. So I first heard about the concept of veterinary social work at a human-animal interaction conference that I went to in Paris um, back in the in the olden days, probably 2016, I think that was. And Phil Arco is a global leader in the area of the link between pets and domestic violence. Um, and I was we had already started providing some some informal support in that space in our region. And in his lecture, he talked about the University of Tennessee runs a program in veterinary social work. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. Because I had interacted with social workers and I was mm-hmm. developing an understanding of what they do, but we were also interacting with all sorts of healthcare professionals. So, um, and I went and Googled it and looked it up and I'm like, oh my goodness, that's what we do. <laughs> you know, we, we do a version of veterinary social work and, and it was actually a critical time in our development because once we were able to give it a name, people actually started paying more attention to us and we weren't just this bunch of do-gooder, social-hearted people. Um, that and this is my advocacy is around the role of the human-animal bond in human health and well-being cannot be underestimated. Mm-hmm. And therefore, when there are challenges in that unit, so, you know, vets and veterinary teams are trained to deal with the pet side of it. Mm-hmm. But when we're talking about the complex human elements, you actually need a professional person managing those. And so the social worker lens of care brings in qualified professionals, skilled, you know, qualified, skilled professionals that have their frameworks and their supports in place to manage the complexity of that care, but also the self-care and the uh, dealing with the emotional load of, of, 
know, we do really hard work. We deal with really tricky people mm. and tricky scenarios and it is not easy. And what we see in that volunteer space in rescue and, and often with social hearted vets and nurses, they're doing it for nothing and they burn out and it's yeah. not sustainable. So for this to become sustainable and part of the fabric of the animal health and human health services, we need to be paying people to do it. So back in um, March 2020, so there's a bit of serendipity in our story too because the chair of our foundation, Cherish Pets Foundation, um, Judy Wookie, is also a social worker by background and it was, you know, the bit of gold that came along to help us progress because as part of her role with Deakin Uni, she supervises social work students on placement. So mm-hmm. she came to me, uh, well, it was a long time ago now, but two and a half years ago, I think, um, and said, why don't we have a couple of social work students on placement? And I'm like, yes, let's do that. That is going to be so fun. Great idea. And and what it did was it began this journey that we've been on to really crystallise that service as a service in its own right that is separate to our veterinary service. So Cherished Pets now has our clinic and then we have our, we call them our care team. It's our care team. So we had two students on placement and in a six-month period they made themselves indispensable. So we created an internship role for them and then kept them on staff. And we've still got Elise with us to this day. So she would perhaps be in the practical sense of delivering veterinary social work in the community, you know, the, the country's leading authority on it because she's been in that space as we've been developing it. Um, and because veterinary social work has the elements within the veterinary industry, so veterinary social workers provide that support to veterinary teams um, around managing burnout and compassion fatigue. There's a there's a big uh, opportunity there for debriefing and and supervision of veterinary teams when tricky things happen. Uh, but they're also there as a referral pathway and a resource if like I had one yesterday we we had a client come in who was really in distress um struggling with mental health her life circumstances had changed and I just want to acknowledge that the fastest growing area of homelessness in Australia is older women Mm. who often come to us with a from a broken marriage limited superannuation mental physical health, often both, sometimes not always estranged from their family, but their emotional uh, anchor is their pet. Mm. And if their pet then goes and gets sick, they, the, the emotional stress that it causes is, you know, huge. So recognising that we maybe needed extra assistance with this client, I just called in one of our care team who came into the consult, introduced herself as one of the care team, but she actually then sort of plays a role in the consulting room as an assistant to help hold the animal and things like that. And together we were able to create a plan of action around what this dog needs. So back to your earlier question, yes, we we refer to the care team if we feel that it's relevant and then they go through that intake assessment needs assessment and planning process. One of my questions too, but I think you've kind of answered it, is how do you integrate the veterinary social work with the human side of it? 
as well. Yeah, so it comes in different ways. So we have that that uh, example where it's an internal referral within our own practice, mm-hmm. but with our community outreach, we our, the Cherished Pets Vet Social Work Service now operates as as a service in its own right in our region, and this is where it gets exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can think of veterinary social work as being the bridge between human health and animal health. Mm-hmm. They're in that – it's essentially a, an area of uh, – it's an emerging field of social work practice in the human-animal bond space. And so whenever you've got pets and people together and there are challenges around the human – the veterinary social worker can fit in there. So we get referrals from the health agencies, mental health, social workers at the hospital. So a classic example of that is somebody's landed in hospital and they, they've got a dog at home that no one's feeding or looking after. Mm-hmm. So the social worker at the hospital will ring our team and, and that is fitting into our crisis care service. So earlier I talked about the home pet care assistance, which yep. is matching volunteers and the community vet nurse, and they're all very warm and fuzzy and easy actually. What's really challenging is the crisis care service, mm. and um, we've been very blessed this year to get some support from the Victorian State Government to fund the salaries of uh, two vet social workers and a program manager and a volunteer coordinator uh, just for 12 months, which is a big responsibility because we we obviously want to create a sustainable service beyond that. Yeah. Um, and also to allow us to develop our crisis care service. So we get referrals from across the uh, health sector and also directly from, or from other vets. That's actually a, another a common referral pathway and direct from families and relatives. Right. While you're talking, I'm just thinking about examples as well where, you know, elderly people might be affected by their capabilities in looking after um, an animal. So, you know, let's say especially for those Elderly people that, for example, may have dementia and they have, they're on their own and all they have is their pet companion that means everything to them. But if there is a problem with that pet and they need ongoing care or like daily medication, um, I suppose your, your services would help ensuring that that pet is getting what they need. Absolutely. So you've had, you've, You've nailed it, Trish. Like you've, you get it. So it's like a wraparound service. So my original question when I came into developing this is what do we need to do as individuals and as a community, you know, to support pets of vulnerable people? And the guiding question is what do we need to do to keep this pet healthy and well and together with his human for as long as is possible? Mm-hmm. Now, that sounds easy. It's not. And when you delve into the human-animal bond space, it is inevitable that there is going to be tension and conflict in there. And one of the greatest challenges that our team has had to navigate as we develop our service 
is when we're faced with a scenario when what is best for that pet Mm -hmm. and what is best for that human are actually different things. And that's where it gets challenging, very challenging, because we have cases where we will sometimes recommend surrender of the pet. Right, okay. And that's around the word that you used, capability. Mm -hmm. So everybody in life can go through physical, psychological, financial periods of challenge. And, you know, fundamental to our principles is ethical, responsible pet ownership. Mm -hmm. And so as we've been refining our service, we've been able to develop those eligibility criteria. And there needs to be a demonstrated track record of responsible pet ownership. And that does mean that there are some individuals in the community that can't access our service because for us to be able to meet our social mission, we we have to be fair for all. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they're very challenging cases to navigate. Um, if So we, you know, we understand that things can happen for a period of time and in our crisis care service, for example, it is intended to be maximum of three months and to extend it beyond that requires a, another process of approval. Um, so three months is kind of the maximum period applied to support the pets of people with whatever is going on in their life. And so I suppose I'm referring to mental health mm-hmm. and uh, domestic violence that the the goal is to help them look after their pet, keep their pet healthy and well while they get their life sorted within that three-month time frame and hopefully by that time they can then have their pet back with them. Now, there is discretionary extension of that, of course, but then there are some cases where by developing that relationship with the caseworker and, and, and the human that we have to say actually the best thing for the welfare of this dog and well-being mm. of this cat in the long term is to actually look at a, an alternative home. Really difficult. And that's, that's yeah. the, you know, I've always said right from the beginning when we first launched Cherished Pets, I'm like, this is my can of worms project. Mm. We, we are in there dealing with the two hard basket cases <laughs> in the industry. There's no question. The ones that get turned away and and um, or the ones, you know, when you're talking about uh, humans with mental health challenge, they can be really tricky clients to deal with in the consulting room and they bring the vet teams down. Yeah. And not, not always in a conflict way, in a draining way. So I'm sure lots of vets and nurses that listening to this can relate to the clients who have that extreme level of attachment to their pet that they can't let it go and we've got that tension that it's actually time for the pet for end of life discussions Mm. but because of the human elements they're not letting it go and then the you could almost feel the drain that that causes the teams in having to deal with those people there's the people that come all the time and there's not really much wrong with their pet yeah but they're coming for a whole you know plethora of reasons that brings them there and loneliness and isolation and that can be a factor there. So it's such a complex space because no we're talking about a pet and a human and no pet, no two pets are the same and no two humans no. are the same. So you whack 
them in together and and that's why it's our can of worms project because as we as we face a new challenge and every week we face a new challenge and this is where we love you know the thing I get so excited about with Cherished Pets is the way we've been able to develop this whole team behind what we're trying to do and we're not there yet but we're definitely getting you know we're progressing and this this service will evolve for years and beyond my lifetime but I'm people know me now you know my my passion and my advocacy Mm. is the role of healthy companion pets in human health and well-being and why the veterinary social worker role you know my dream is for it to be become part of the fabric of our industry and embedded in the industry as a paid vital role in delivering our care as vets but also in supporting the health community, um, they, you know, in our region, the the other caseworkers and that, they, they feel so blessed that if they have a complex case and there's a pet involved, they can just refer to us. And, of course, we're only operating in the Geelong region and our, our service is unique and we get regular inquiries from all over the country about, I can imagine. You know, is there a similar service here? So I'm... You know, I'm very grateful to the vet industry in the last few months. We've we've certainly had traction with people being curious about what we're doing. And I think the government grant was a game changer for us. So we have invested in impact measurement over the last couple of years. And what I mean by that is, and it's a significant investment, but I've known for a long time, I and mean, we've got a growing body of evidence about the health benefits mm-hmm. of companion pets, so particularly in mental health. But what we're also extrapolating that into is the impact of a social-hearted veterinary service in a community, not just on animal health and wellbeing, but on human health and wellbeing. And we were able to demonstrate that in that last financial year, our little service in our corner of the world had an economic benefit of $740,000 because we're helping people stay healthier, happier mm. and stronger. And so then people are starting to pay attention, which is fantastic because what we want to do is grow our story, grow our impact measurement. And, you know, we were talking about this at the recent VET Forum the social value of vets is something that hasn't been measured and recognised and it's going to be such a key driver of uh, funding and support into our industry. I mean, I don't know if you know this statistic, but the um, there was a survey done last year and I, for the life of me, can't remember my name, but it, the, it's Australian Medicines or oh, I've gone blank. But they were able to show through that survey that 37% of Australians have expressed challenge accessing veterinary services. Mm. We we can't continue to ignore that statistics. That's 6 million pets in Australia. Yeah. And we can't keep putting those pets into the social-hearted, low-cost clinic space, you know. And our funding model addresses this issue because through the uh, subsidy funding that can be accessed through the foundation. It's not always about money, but it often is. Mm -hmm. You can then provide that additional assistance to provide inclusive and accessible veterinary care, which then reduces the tension in the consulting room when our younger vets in particular are having to navigate those complex scenarios of uh, 
talking about care and affordability. And going back to what you said a little bit earlier as well about that sort of attachment, human-animal bond attachment that elderly people have to their pets and not wanting to let them go and having those different cases and scenarios, which I can imagine must be so emotionally draining um, for for the vet that's dealing with the with the pet owner and the pet. Once you know you make that decision that you know what is best for the pet, and sometimes is to let them go. Is it from your end or from the human social side of things? Do they offer some support? for that elderly person that has lost and sometimes it's their only companion? Absolutely. So best way to illustrate that answer is with a bit of a case example. So we were, we got a referral from a local primary vet practice of this elderly lady who ticked so many boxes of vulnerability. Uh, she could afford to pay though, which is interesting, but she was isolated lived in a big house on her own, uh, had severe arthritis, was kind of a crumpled body. It was very hard seeing her and had huge anxiety around losing her dog. And so she'd had a history with this other practice when her other dog died of not coping at all well. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, thankfully this vet team knew about us and recognised that she would need extra assistance. So referred to us, we offered we offer our service primarily in the home for the end-of-life cases. And so when I went and did the assessment, I took with me one of our care team who's a social worker so that I, I had that support in that space. And so that was very much a quality-of-life assessment. But when we saw this little dog, a little old Maltese, it's like, okay, we need to be planning to let this dog go because he was starting to suffer, particularly with his dementia. And so through our care team, we were then able to create a plan and support for this lady through that final week and then when the actual home euthanasia happened. And honestly, it it went so smoothly because we had the right people in there offering the care and the planning and the follow-up. And then the other element of that case, which is not, it happens in other cases too, is this woman was losing her capability to look after herself and you went mm. into her home and you could see that but she hadn't yet connected to home services. And so our um, care team was able to provide her the linkage to other support services in our region. So not only did she get the extra level of care and support around the passing of her dog, we then, it's like a gateway service, we connected her into other support that she's going to need ongoing. When you think about the value of that service, the value is to the human because, mm -hmm. well, I mean, obviously the value was to the dog because we gave him a smooth exit because he was he was, he was was ancient dog, like it was his time. Yeah. But we had to navigate her agreeing and she had so much fear about the euthanasia and it was so beautiful and he died in her arms and she got so much peace from that moment which then really helped her and then our, our uh, care team was able to support her through the bereavement process to a point but they're not 
bereavement counsellors. So part of what the care team does is know when to refer to. Oh, Alicia, I really hope this is a type of service that will be available all over Australia very, very (laughs) soon. I really do. Yeah, I hope within my lifetime. I mean, I do a lot of talking and and I think our biggest opportunity is the advocacy and building the impact measurement behind it because, you know, the the government funding has been a game changer for us to allow us to uh, fund these salaries and develop Mm -hmm. the service. And so obviously our intention is to take that more. It's like like this great big pilot happening here in Geelong. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, well, it's it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you, Alicia, um, and I hope all of our listeners, you know, really appreciate the work that you do. I know I do. Uh, but before we finish up, is there anything else that we haven't discussed today that you would like to share uh, with us? No, like it's been such a lovely conversation and I, I've really enjoyed the way you've got it. <laughs> <laughs> I really love I really love that and this this is my experience is the more we talk to people people go yeah they get it mm. so collectively I want to keep this conversation going in our corners of the world and you know we're excited to share and speak with listeners if you're a a social hearted vet or a vet nurse out there that's looking for support and direction because I do, you know, I don't think this has been measured, but I think our social heart effects and nurses carry more of the emotional load and perhaps are the ones that are leaving. And so if we can build that intrinsic support into our industry, that there is a referral and support pathway there, then we'll all be stronger for it. So just you know, keep stay in the conversation with us. Get in. I don't know how we share getting in touch, but we have our website um, and social media. You know, Cherished Pets and Social Hearted Vet on Facebook and Instagram is a great way of uh, keeping in the loop. But it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for your interest in the human-animal bond. <laughs> uh, not a problem. And I will share on the episode notes how people can get in touch with you if they would like to. Yeah, beautiful. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you for your time, Alicia. No worries. Thank you. This was the Pure Animal Podcast and I'm Dr. Trish Santos-Smith. If you enjoyed our chat with Dr. Alicia Kennedy today, then please feel free to jump onto iTunes and give us a rating and review.